Welcome to the Financial Fun Podcast with your host, Tammy Johnston. This is where Tammy talks with business owner parents and grandparents about the interesting and important subject of money. We promise this to be an interesting and open discussion, as that's how we learn best. And now, here's your host, author of the Financial Foundations. Financial Foundations is a series of books to teach kids about money, goal setting, and living a balanced life. Find out more at financialfund.ca. Here's Tammy Johnston. First things first, I would like to thank all of my listeners that have subscribed and reviewed my podcast and invite you to subscribe and review if you haven't yet. I appreciate you helping us to get the word out and making financial literacy a safe and welcoming subject for kids and adults. Second, please check out my podcast website, financialfund.ca, where you will be able to access past shows, find out more about me and our guests, as well as purchase the beautifully illustrated Financial Foundations books that teach kids about money in a fun, healthy, and holistic way. Hello once again, and thank you for joining us for the Financial Fund Podcast. Today, our guest is a good friend and client of mine, Mr. John Breeze. Thank you for joining us, John. It's good to be here. Thanks for inviting me. So, John, tell us a bit about what you do. Um, what do I do? Oh, what's an interesting question. What do I do? I um, My primary function is as a, as, as a business coach and as a leadership coach. And my secondary interest, which is completely different, is I love editing and designing books. Well, that definitely keeps you busy. So when, when you're talking about like a business and a leadership coach, what mm-hmm. does that mean? Well, as, as, as a business coach, I help business owners get clear on what their business is all about, where, what direction it's heading. Um, why isn't it as profitable as it should be? And why are they spending far too much time working in the business instead of doing the other things that they would prefer to be doing? Like, heaven forbid, being at home, spending time with the family, traveling, <laughs> hobbies, sports, you name it. Not to mention sleeping. Yeah, very, very important stuff, especially for those starting off where you just seem to eat, think, sleep, breathe. Everything is all about the business. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. And and the leadership, the leadership work that I do um, is kind of heading in the direction of working with leaders and, and, and owners and partners who are working in collaboration with another person. So it's what we call partnership coaching. But it's not about marriage or romantic relationships or anything like that. It's about people who are working together to a common purpose Um and yes, there's a there's a significant element of building and maintaining relationship and common humanity and and care and concern for the other person, but it's very much purposeful. Um, and for, uh, examples are um, we just had a client recently join us who has been tasked with a colleague on an equal basis to set up a brand new department in an, in a company in an organization. And to create a community in that department that is quite different from the rest of the organization and is focused on recognition and acceptance of each each other as as humans with issues as opposed to cogs in a wheel. Um, so that's a that that's a, a, a an interestingly developing business that we're noticing. A number of companies are starting to do this kind of thing and recognize that two people working together brings so much more into the into the partnership and into the creativity than one person working by themselves and or directing subordinates. Oh, completely. Like businesses 
are, are starting to realize the importance of treating their people like people so that they can give their best rather than just putting in their time to get paid. Absolutely, yeah. And what is your family situation, John? Um, family situation, I'm married second time through. Um, I have a daughter from first marriage who lives in Ottawa. They have, she and her husband have two children, my grandchildren. <laughs> they are both teenagers, so it's an interesting time for all of them. Um, and we probably get to spend time with them, of the, quite honestly, about once a year, although we do spend time on the phone and, and that sort of thing. But uh, it's it's a version of a long distance family relationship rather than just around the corner. I'm have I've, I've had enough of you today. Go visit grandpa. Yeah, which is becoming more and more common. There's very it's more normal to have family that. No, you can't just send them around the corner or anything. It's 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 a different city or a different province. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's very much a sign of our and I know not that there's anything wrong with this, but it's, to me, it's a sign of our increasing mobility and our increasing willingness to um choose to go live in places that have meaning for us as a as future opportunity rather than past historical traditional ties. And, and what, are, what are some of the things that, being, being a grandfather, what are some of the things that you were noticing that are very different about with kids and money when you were growing up versus, like, your grandchildren now, not only just a different generation, but a different country? Because you, you hmm. were originally from England, aren't you? Yes, I grew up in England. I came to Canada when I was, just after I graduated. So, yeah, very interestingly, differently formative time. Um, funny you should ask that question about what, what's different. So here's something that I find is fundamentally different that came up for me just the other day. Um, my grandson I know has an iPhone, um, which is, which is fine. I did a bit of thinking back to when I had my very first job. I think I was about 15 years old and I got a summer job working in a, a local sort of manufacturing packaging plant that packaged powdered soup into aluminum foil packages. And I calculated that on the basis of the wage that I was earning then, and it was not unreasonable for a student, it would have taken me a year and a half to earn enough money without spending any to buy an iPhone. (laughs) If if the wages were the same as what you were making then, and the iPhone is what it makes it costs now. <laughs> yes, exactly. Yes, exactly. And interestingly enough, he's about the same age as I was at that particular time, but he didn't have any price. I should mention that he bought the iPhone himself. It wasn't a gift. Oh, well, that's very impressive. Yeah, there's an there's an interesting difference um, that 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 sort of came to me recently. Um, what else was different? Um, well. Certainly at the time that I was growing up, which was a little bit after the Second World War, um, it was definitely a time of scarcity. We had rationing um, of, of sort of basic commodities and clothing and that kind of thing. So money had a slightly different meaning, I suppose, at that time, even though I was a bit very young in terms of understanding it. But there were limited things you could do with it, for starters, because you had limited access to um, a, a lot of the basic things that we take so much for granted now, you know, um, butter and sugar and bacon and eggs and things. When, when you say rationing, because like I've I've always heard about that 
and like a few things from my grandparents and stuff. But what exactly did that mean? Like, how did it affect your life day to day? Like, when you say rationing, what did that mean? Well, um, each person had a booklet full of coupons. And these coupons were for specific items and they had dates on them. So the idea was if you, I don't, just as an example, you went down to the, to, um, the grocery store and if you wanted a pound of sugar, you, you traded a coupon for, let's assume it was a pound. It might have been half a pound, but who cares? And if there were more than one person in the family, then you could trade two coupons and get two of them. And that was it. You couldn't get any more until the following week. Same thing with eggs, same thing with butter, same things with uh, a number of staple food items like that. And part of the issue was to do with avoiding hoarding, to to uh, stretch the supplies and and avoid uh, too much, at least, of, a, of, of an underground market of commodities like that that would have pushed the prices out of sight. Um, the, the, it was true also for cloth and clothing. Um, I mean, those were the days when I would have said most... And I'm afraid it was true that it would be most mothers um, made clothes for themselves and their children. And for the same on the same basis, they would have a set of coupons that allowed them to buy so many yards of cloth every month or whatever it might be. And when it was used, it was used. And there just wasn't any reasonable way to get any more until the next ration arrived. So it was a con controlled distribution of critical items that... Uh, uh, we're not available. We're not available at any level of, of abundance, and so that was perhaps the more of the driving issue than actually just do we have enough money to buy things. It was do we have enough coupons available that they would allow us, they would be allowed to sell them to us. Interesting contrast with today, I guess. Oh, it's a complete opposite. Like, like I said, I've heard about it, but I never really like. I'm going, how exactly does that work? Because if mm. you want to talk about clothes now, I was just talking with another person. And like the thing with the fast fashion and you go out to the stores and they have so much cheap, poorly made clothing coming out literally every single week that it's like thrift stores can't even take it anymore. And most of this stuff is just going straight to the landfill. And then wow. hearing about you're going, well, you only get so much material. And yes, the mom was typically the one doing the sewing like night and day difference. <laughs> oh, for sure. Yes, definitely. a. Um, an atmosphere of scarcity rather than an atmosphere of abundance. That's that's true. And, and you might almost say, and this is, I know, a, a generational attitude. You you, you might almost say, um, and there's there's now an attitude of excess. Oh. Um, and I one thing I notice, um, well, two two things that immediately come to mind. Um, one is the prevalence of of thrift stores that are overloaded with things that people are getting rid of and it's noticeable how that is, i mean everything that shows up in the thrift stores is in pretty good usable condition it's not like people are throwing away junk they're just getting rid of stuff that they don't want anymore and also the proliferation of storage companies who let rent lockers to so you, instead of getting rid of stuff, you can just put it into storage and keep it and keep it and keep it for as long as you care to pay the fee. Yeah, some people that uh, are of the belief that he who dies with the most toys wins, but they forget you can't take it with you. And other people have to deal with that when you're gone. Yes. Who knows where the key of the padlock is? Or I, I've, I've, I've got a good friend and client, and her brother owns a Got Junk franchise out on Vancouver Island. 
And she says that a large part of his business, in fact, the majority of his business is dealing with um, people where mom or dad, like grandma or grandpa, have finally passed on. And they have these entire houses filled with stuff. Not just like, yes, he, he deals with a few hoarders, but there's just like decades worth of accumulations of everything. And the family doesn't have the time, the space, the desire to deal with anything. So they phone up his company and say, take everything. Just empty mm -hmm. the place. I love the way you call that a junk franchise. <laughs> well, it, it, yeah, it's called his franchise is called Got Junk because he, they, they come in, like if you're mm -hmm. doing construction or your yard cleanup and stuff, so they come and get garbage in large quantities. Mm -hmm. Or if you're doing, like I said, renovations and things like that. But large part of his business is just dealing with the state. The family doesn't have the time, interest, motivation, mm -hmm. none of it. Just take it all. <laughs> Amazing. Absolutely. Yeah. It, it, yes, it, it, it's a huge contrast when you sort of make me aware of it from, from my childhood until till where we are now. Um, and I'm just observing it. I'm not. I'm not feeling in any way um, critical of it. But it's it's interesting that you draw my attention to that uh, that significant difference. And I don't think it really changed until it did. It, I don't think it changed very significantly until I actually went away to university. So that with that period of my time just was just automatically um, aware. Of it, very much aware of the things that were not available and couldn't do by contrast with today where it's all about there's so much that's available and can do that choosing what not to do now becomes the uh, becomes a driving factor rather than than what could what's what might be possible we've been talking about like when you were a kid and, and like having to deal with the rationing and, and stuff like that mm -hmm. and then and then when when you moved to Canada and you you started your own family and dealing with your daughter and stuff like that what were some mm -hmm. of the things that you noticed were different from from that like yes we have very much different ceiling what your grandchildren are dealing with but what were some of the things that you mm -hmm. noticed that were different dealing with your own daughter when she was small well one of the things that the, one thing that I remember um, as you as as you get me thinking about it, even though we were certainly not in what I would call abundant circumstances when we arrived in Canada, I was newly married at the time. Um, we didn't really have to stop and think about whether or not uh, certainly what we felt was essential and necessary from the point of view of being parents and providing um, safe and comfortable and nutritious and healthy surroundings for our daughter. There was, there was no question about whether or not we could afford it or whether or not what we felt we needed was going to be available. It would just, I suppose we do, we very quickly fell into the place of taking it for granted. Um, I mean, health care was available, nutritious food was available in reasonable abundance, comfortable, safe, warm housing, um, choice of baby clothes and that sort of thing. Um, what, what, one thing I do remember that was kind of curious at the time when we arrived, we, we, we thought we would just go down, down the road to, I guess it was Eaton's in the day and, and get some furniture for our new apartment. Um, and that was when we discovered that we could order whatever we wanted, but it would take two weeks because it had to be delivered from Toronto. We were living in Montreal at the time. This was something that was a little surprising that, um, yes, if you wanted furniture, it wasn't that it wasn't affordable. You just had to plan to be able to uh, to actually get it into your home. Um, we ended up going around the corner and buying two bar stools and a and a coffee table, which got us through at least the first couple of weeks until Eaton showed up with the stuff that we'd ordered. That was kind of fun. 
So you're saying like if you if you've been back in England, you could have it would have just been like delivered right away. When you ask that question, I have to say I don't know because I didn't do it. I mean, the furniture that we had in the home had more or less been there forever, except and there were I mean there were some new items from time to time, and I was not aware of how that actually came to be. Yes, stuff stuff must have been delivered. Um, but I wasn't conscious of what was the process that my parents went through to actually make that happen. Oh, what a sheltered life I must have led if I didn't even know where a bed came from. <laughs> That's the big thing. All the stuff that you, you, you don't even think about because it it's just background and it's taken care of until you actually have to start mm. dealing with it. <laughs> mm. Well, I mean, yes, yeah, so again, piece of taking taken for granted. Um if I want to buy a bed, I, can, I have the choice of driving down to Ikea, buying a couple of cardboard boxes full of stuff, bringing them home and creating a bed. Um, I get to choose to do that. Um, that's, a, that's perhaps another of the, the, the really significant changes that's happened over that period of time is access to, to that kind of um, large, large mass production of, of items that we used that used to be more or less custom i suppose custom made for uh for for, for the need certainly in the 1920s 1930s when my parents were growing up that was probably the case you wanted a bed you ordered one and somebody made one for you um nowadays you want a, you want a bed you go get one stick it in the back of the car and take it home um may yeah, mattresses are a bit more of a problem but uh, uh <laughs> the bed itself at least is easy Hey, a lot of the places like uh, IKEA, for example, will rent you a truck to deliver the stuff. <laughs> That's a mind-boggling idea, isn't it? Yeah. When you can stop and think of it, um, yes. Of course, we call them lorries. Not that that really matters. And uh, you had to have a yes, you'd have to have a special a special license and training to be allowed even to, to 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 drive one of those. So the idea that you might rent one to bring your stuff home would be would have been a non-starter anyway, because um, you wouldn't have had um. Huh. I think my parents probably, my parents must have been in their forties before they even considered getting a driver's license, let alone buying a car. Hmm. Oh, that's an interesting point. Nowadays, if you haven't got one by the time you're 16, there's something wrong. I mean, a, a license that is. You may or may not have a car, but certainly a driver's license. Well, I'm, I'm finding that as a very different thing too, because so, I, I grew up in rural Alberta, so, like, our closest neighbor was a mile away, and we were 10 miles out of town, so, mm -hmm. and, and I grew up with, like, farm kids, so they were, they were learning to drive because they had to help out mm -hmm. around the farm and stuff at, like, 10, so you got your learners at 14, and you were, you got your license at 16, because if you wanted to go anywhere, that's what you do, and I mm -hmm. found that when I moved into the city that there was quite a few people my age that didn't even have their license because they had access to things like transit. But I'm going, don't you want like having a license opens up so many doors. And my daughter actually is going to be going and writing her learner's test tomorrow. And Oh yes. Mm -hmm. So we're all excited about that. Mm -hmm. But my nephew who still lives in rural Alberta and he's, he's almost 17 he doesn't have his license. He's not interested in getting his license. And I'm going, I don't get it. <laughs> <laughs> so some are really into it. 
But I'm finding, talking to more of my clients and stuff like that, that the, the, mm-hmm. the kids that are getting, especially the boys, the girls are more into getting their licenses that I'm finding yeah. than the boys are. And like I said, if you're in a city with transit, like, okay, yeah, you can deal with mm-hmm. that. But mm-hmm. it's, it's a very different thing. <laughs> it's Yes, it, it's almost as though it's come full circle because as you mentioned that, and I'm thinking, yeah, my, my two grandkids, uh, what are they... Sixteen and seventeen, or uh, about to be that age within the next four to six weeks, they don't seem to have any interest in getting a driver's license or or, or whatever is involved in in driving a car. They, I guess they, they they don't see it as perhaps if it ever was a status symbol. They certainly don't see it that way anymore. And they're, um, yeah, the, mind you, this may have be something to do with my daughter's influence on them. They want to go somewhere. They figure it out for themselves. I'll go ride their bicycle. I mean, what's it, what, what's the bicycle for? So, um, yeah, so they, they have, yes, they've come another, an, an, another, um, path in the evolution of attitude to that kind of thing, um, back through your generation and back, even back to my generation. I'm thinking a lot of the values are changing. Like if, if, if you're talking with more of millennials and stuff, like our generation and your generation and, and, and my parents, which is in between you and I, where, like, you're supposed to, like, get a house, and you have the vehicle, and these are, it's not so much status, but it's part of being an adult, but because the world has changed so much for the millennials and the younger ones, they know that they're not, like, it's highly unlikely that they're going to be able to purchase a, a, a house or a condo in their 20s. It's going to be their 30s before they have the money saved up, and, and vehicles are so much more expensive, and then you throw on the insurance and that, and they're going, do I want to make the financial commitment for that mm. when I have all these other options and there's so many people like they'll they'll ride their bike. My husband will ride his bike in the summer quite a bit downtown mm. to go to work and, and and they'll take transit or they'll use mom and dad to different things like that where so they don't have the same attachments mm. to it because it's not viewed the same way. Their values are looking very different. And in a lot of ways it makes sense because if you're looking at even just insurance for a young person can be $300 a month, which is a lot of money. Um, absolutely. Um, I'm, I'm thinking, as you say that, that um, I'm going to argue that, uh, again, my generation and those who came perhaps a little bit later, um, this, was to do, this, this was to do with, with gaining freedom, um, freedom from restrictions, freedom from scarcity, freedom of movement, um, freedom of of ind- independence and to some extent privacy when we're talking about housing and, and that sort of thing. Um, nowadays, I think what I'm hearing you say is is uh, people of this of the current generation are seeing these things much more as a choice between actually giving up freedom and incurring obligations and restrictions, particularly financial ones that they have a very different attitude towards um towards deciding if they want to take on those those obligations at this particular time or whether they're better off without them. So looking looking at kids today, like the younger generation, so our teenagers, your grandchildren and stuff, what are three lessons that you think that kids need to know in order to be happy and successful in the financial world when they hit adulthood? What are three things? Three things: happy and successful in the financial world. Don't. Well, I would say first of all, don't be too, don't be too obsessed and concerned about money um, in and of itself. 
Um, it's it's a means to an end, and that includes the idea that oh, you should be you should be making sure that you start saving from age ten or whatever it might be for retirement. I don't think we're going to find that kids of this generation even get to understand what retirement is or what it means in the conventional sense. The idea that you you work your butt off for a period of time so that eventually you can afford to not work your butt off anymore, I think is going to go completely by the board. I think it already has to, in a lot of cases. I think, think it already has. Okay. Um, and and so it's very much more a matter of what what is it that gives you gives you fulfillment in life and... What are you prepared? What what are you prepared to do in order to be able to get to that stage and not be in a place of scarcity? So that's one thing. Um, the second one, and this comes from sooner or later, I think we're going to discover, and I kind of hope it's not in my lifetime, but you never know. Um, money actually doesn't mean very much, um, and what's really important is very possibly going to be things that we would refer to as survival skills. Um, what is it that you are going to be able to do that other people will place value on, that they in turn will trade stuff with you to your mutual satisfaction? Right now, that happens to be what we call money, but it doesn't have a whole lot of underpinning and it's getting worse by the day. So do not put your entire trust in survival on having enough money, and I put that in air quotes, because um, I'm not at all sure that 20 years from now it'll have a, have the same kind of meaning. The world is changing very, very quickly and more drastically mm. than a lot of people understand. Yes. Yeah, yeah. As and when China finally gets pissed off with the, North, with, with, with the United States and starts to do something with, the, I believe it's something in excess of $4 trillion that they hold in reserve, I think it's a getting close to the amount that the Federal Reserve is holding, they're going to want to do something with that, and the whole world's going to change once they make that decision that they're going to do that. Um, and if you just want to sit and wait for that to happen and decide what to do after that, it could be too bad, so sad. Um, so that's that's a couple of things. You want a third one, don't yep. you? What's the third um, one? The, um, I, I would say... Um, Make sure that you don't lose sight of the value of really deep, meaningful relationships um, and treasure and value and support those relationships at least as much as you're willing to focus on material wealth and material goods. It will be much more significant for you in the long run um, than, than dollars in a bank account. Those are very, very good. Thank you so much for taking the time to talk with us today, John. You're welcome. Been fun. Thank you. It was. Have a great day. You too. Before we leave each other, I would ask all of you listening to please subscribe to and rate my podcast. A review would be most appreciated and feedback is always welcome. Whether it be a comment, future topic suggestions, and or questions you or your kids would like to have answered in the Ask Tammy column on the financialfund.ca website. Please feel free to check me out on Facebook at Financial Foundations Children's Books, on Twitter at Financial Fun, and Instagram at Financial.Fun. Thank you for joining us for this episode of the Financial Fun Podcast. Join Tammy Johnston again next week. For more information, please visit FinancialFun.ca.